Hey, good morning, everybody. Sorry I'm a few minutes late. Ran into some uh, technical difficulties. I see chat is assuming, a uh, rumble chat anyway, is assuming it has to do with my mustache. No, uh, but I, it's not as fancy as I prefer it to be. Um, so I, it's fine if I, maybe I'll blame it on that. I was actually having some computer problems and uh, just running late. It's a cold and rainy and windy, windy Wednesday morning here in Virginia. And um, I'm slow. My three-year-old's slow. Everything just went slow this morning. The computer's slow. Just one of those mornings. But I am here. And this is Just Human number 156. Thank you for being here. Um, everybody who's watching on DLive, Rumble, Telegram, Boxhole, appreciate you guys very much. And again, apologies, I'm a few minutes late. Um, and sincere apologies. I really appreciate those of you who tune in and get up early and try to make the show on time because you want to catch it live. I appreciate that very much. And sincere apologies that, it, that I'm late. So we got some stuff to cover today. A few different topics. And one of them, I'm honestly, uh, I'm kind of, I'm still like chewing on and debating with myself how to go about it. And that's the FTX scandal because I was, I was building it up yesterday. What I was going to like my stack of what I was going to cover with it. And I just keep finding more and more stuff. And the FTX thing is, it's so big and it's tentacles reach into so many areas. And I just don't know where to start with it um, and where to go with it. Because it, just when I think I'm, just when I think I have a grasp of it, I find some other piece that adds a whole nother spectrum, a whole nother layer or several layers to it. Um, it's a, it's an incredible scandal. It's starting to feel to me like when I was looking into Spygate and how you never quite feel like you have a grasp of the entire thing. And FTX is starting to feel like that kind of a behemoth of a scandal. And late last night I was watching some videos about it. And I was, I was reading some threads and some articles and the word or the acronym RICO kept coming into my mind. And I think we're looking at a RICO case here. Not sure about that, but I feel like there is a RICO element in all of this. Um, such is the conspiracy here. Um, not sure about that yet, but last night I was thinking about how massive it is and how many places it reaches. And I'm like, Hmm, this could develop into a re a, a Rico cons Rico case. It's uh it's incredible. So I'm trying to figure out how to approach it. I'm still debating with myself about how to go about it. I know one aspect of it I'm going to hit on today, which is his donations or their donations to both Democrats and Republicans. Um, it's swampy. FTX scandal is very, very swampy. Ukraine swamp, DC swamp, media swamp, uh, the financial world swamp. It's very swampy. 
All right. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the um, Oath Keepers trial and the guilty verdict. And then Trump v. United States, the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, special master case. And a few smaller things. And I'm going to hit some of these quick topics. Here at the beginning, I want to hit a few quick topics um, or, or news stories. So thanks again for being here, guys. And um, I guess I should say, uh, screw it. I'll go, ahead, I'll go ahead and address this. I wasn't going to say anything, but I'll go ahead and do it because it's fun. Um, I know some people are upset with me for not giving more attention to that Brunson case. But uh, I don't think it's going anywhere. And people keep asking me about it, and I really don't think it's going anywhere. And if it does go somewhere, then I'll apologize for being dismissive of it, and I'll backtrack, and I'll give it attention. But I do not think the Brunson case is going anywhere, and that's why I only gave it 10 minutes on my show. Because I just, I just don't think it's a thing. And if that upsets you, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but that's my opinion of it. And if I'm wrong, I'll be happy to be wrong, right? Because this would be something that if I'm wrong about, it would be a good thing. It'd be a good thing if I'm wrong about this. So I will be really happy if I'm wrong and I have to backtrack and give it some attention, but I don't think I am. Okay. I want to, first thing I want to hit on is I want to give a, a recommendation to you guys. I want to give a recommendation. This show last night on Badlands Media, Eye of the Storm with Stormy Patriot Joe and Absolute 1776 was superb. It's episode five of their show. They go over the Q drops and connect them to news and events. They basically unlock them. If you want to say, um, it is, it's phenomenal. Last night's episode was absolutely outstanding and full of information and research and insight I just cannot say enough good things about this show. Um, I would also say that even if you're not into the drops, if you, whether actually, I would say whether you're really into them or if you're not really into them at all, this is a really good show to watch. Um, I would even recommend going back to episode one or two and starting there and getting an introduction. These guys are doing phenomenal work, it's so educational. And I caught the last, I don't know, last half of it, I think, and was blown away by just what I saw. And later today, I'm going to go back and watch the whole show. Um, so I haven't even seen the whole show and I'm blown. I only caught the last half and I'm blown away by what these guys were doing. I can't recommend this show enough. It's over on Badlands Media's Rumble page. Eye of the Storm. It's awesome. Okay, next thing I want to get to, not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's, we're starting to get the media is starting to crystallize around the, the narratives on the Trump Mar-a-Lago dinner with Ye and Fuentes and Milo. And 
there's a contingency in conservative media that is saying, look, Kanye did Trump dirty, which was my first reaction, as you guys know. I've since changed that. Um, but there's a narrative in conservative media that Kanye did Trump dirty and, you know, he had, he planned to make Trump's life miserable, miserable. Um, and then there's another element in conservative media that's saying that Trump screwed up. He should have never accepted this dinner and they're going to use their, they are using that to make the case. That's why Trump can't run again. Cause he does things like this. If, if we, make him our nominee in 2024. We're just going to get more of this. Aren't you tired of these scandalous stories? Aren't you tired of it? Kind of, kind of thing. And then of course the leftist media is just saying, well, this just shows who Trump is. He actually is a white supremacist, which doesn't make sense because he's there with Kanye, but whatever. Um, it doesn't have to make sense. They're just trying to program people, uh, with that narrative. I think there's a lot more to this meeting. And I'm planning, I'm thinking on Friday, I'm going to dig into some background on uh, some interesting things that Kanye Fuentes and Milo were involved in that kind of point to me that there's, there's more going on here than just a dinner that's causing a news story. Um, more than It's more than Trump playing with fire, so to speak. Um, I did see Ye's interview with Tim Pool. Um, I used to watch Tim Pool quite a bit whenever Adam was on there, Adam Krigler. And I like Adam Krigler quite a bit. But I I never watched Tim Pool anymore ever since Adam left. Um or since he was fired or whatever. Uh but I, I went and watched the clips and I watched the full clip of um Ye being there with Tim Pool and I have empathy for Kanye because I think he's trying to describe something that's real, but he doesn't have, he can't articulate it well. And I am praying that he is not actually as anti-Semitic as he's coming across and is not as anti-Semitic as Fuentes. Um, I am hopeful that he's not, but he's not coming across well. And I personally, I'm so turned off by anybody who gets even close to anti-Semitism. Um, and with Kanye, it's like the, the way he's articulating it isn't, isn't good. So I have, have a lot of concern for Kanye and I hope it's just a matter of him not, not being able to articulate it that well. And I don't mean that as in he is not intelligent or something. I think Kanye is highly intelligent. I just think he's not communicating what he's getting at as well as he could. Um, and it's turning, it's turning me off. Tim Pool barely, barely challenged him on this. And Kanye walked out and I really didn't feel like it was worth walking out over. And so I'm not, I'm not impressed with that, but for all we know, there was something that happened before the show that had already, the the interview was going oddly, but so for all we know, there had already been something that happened before that, that maybe had already irked Kanye 
or for some reason he was, you know, he, he was, it's, it seemed to me like, um, Kanye was already checking out. Um, like he, it wasn't conversational. So I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, again, I think Kanye is very, very intelligent. I just don't think he's articulating his point all that well. And I think it does a disservice to the actual issue that he's trying to address. Um, and just in case anybody thinks, I don't think there's some sort of like sick Jewish underground cabal that's controlling everything. I don't subscribe to that kind of stuff. I don't. It's too anti-Semitic to me. I do think there are evil people. And I do think they work together to do evil things and control media and culture and news and music and all sorts of things. And that's really what he's getting at. Um, and I think generalizing them as they and grouping them together with a, a religion or a race is wrong. So I, I don't, I just don't like the way he's communicating it. So, but it is possible that by him walking out, he drew more attention to the issue than he ever could have by not walking out and that it's a causing a Streisand effect and it's going to get people talking about it. And there's going to be a clarifying, uh, a clarification that happens through um, various people and, and, and citizen journalists and anons and uh, Twitter threads and what it memes, whatever else that does clarify the issue and moves it away from being about a religion or a race of people or an ethnicity and moves it away from talking about it in that sense and moves it into talking about it as an evil and corrupt group of elites who control and influence all sorts of aspects of our world. So salt muncher. I kind of I kind of like what Saltmuncher just said over on Rumble Chat. The cabal hides behind the cover of anti-Semitism. It has nothing to do with the Jewish people. I agree with that. I I yeah I, I like that. And I and I I would like if Kanye had just said that, it would have come across so so different. Any, anyway, a Streisand effect effect has happened, and um. The story ain't going away. The media is giving it a ton of attention instead of paying attention to other things that are much more important. And, uh, but I think, I think there's more going on here. And on Friday, I'm going to have, I think I'm going to have some stuff to present on it. Okay. Next story. What the world, fam? Biden's Secret Service rental vehicles burst into flames after he left Nantucket vacation. So, President Joe Biden rented Secret Service vehicles and they bursted into flames in the Hertz lot on Monday morning, one day after he left. Biden spent Thanksgiving on the ritzy Massachusetts Island with his family last week, the secret service rented five vehicles from Hertz to carry the president and his family. And all five of them caught fire in the parking lot. 
according to footage obtained by the Nantucket Current. Footage shows firefighters spraying down the smoldering remains. The, the vehicles were a Chevy Suburban, a Ford Explorer, an Infiniti QX80, Ford Expedition, and a Jeep Gladiator. The vehicles were parked at the Nantucket Airport, and the blaze reportedly spread to just 40 feet away from the facility's jet fuel tanks. It is currently unknown what caused the fire. Now, this vehicle, the Suburban, appears to be the most damaged and is probably the one that caught fire first, and then the other ones are next to it, and then they subsequently caught fire or had fire damage. Um, it was, the fire was observed at 5.22 AM and, um, staff activated the alert system, responded to the fire in airport three where they met with you know, fire department showed up and put out the fire. There's that suburban. It's more burned than any of the other ones. Um, let's see. Jump to this thread. We don't need audio for this video. Just you can see, just looking at this video, you can see that the gladiator it didn't catch it. It caught fire, but it caught fire because of the other vehicles were on fire. It's the suburban that is the most damaged, right? And then. Or may, I think that's a Suburban. I'm not positive. This one kind of looks like a Suburban too. Whatever this white one is, that scene, that's the vehicle with the most fire damage. So I think it's reasonable to suspect that it caught fire first or was the, caught, the, the fire started here. And then the other vehicles around it caught fire because this one is burning. But what the world, guys? Like... Did something did something bad almost happen to the to the secret service and the president's family? Like like this is super 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 sus. And I don't I don't know how regular it is, how normal it is for the secret service to rent vehicles. Um I understand it's Thanksgiving so there were a lot of people that you know, they got got their family together, but I also kind of wonder if it's not even accurate that it was Secret Service who rented it. Like if these vehicles were rented for extended members of Biden's family who came and visited and they were all driving around together to go place to go to to the Thanksgiving dinner, right? And it's being it's being said that they were Secret Service vehicles, but they not really sure about it. it could there could be a little bit of confusion there. Okay, there could be a little bit of confusion, but Secret Service have special vehicles that they use, and I'm not sure how normal it is for Secret Service to rent regular vehicles from a Hertz or Enterprise or whatever. But to have one of those vehicles catch fire, because it really does appear to me that one of them caught fire and then the rest were parked close enough that they got fire damage. I mean, that's just that it doesn't get more sus than that. I want to know who was in this vehicle. Like, 
who who was it that was that was in this vehicle driving around what members of his family was this targeted really weird really really weird and no coincidences guys <laughs> no coincidences something's up I don't want to make more of it than we have evidence to make of it, but something's up. That's just, that's just too bizarre. Okay. Next thing. Scoop Biden administration eyes border overhaul as title 42 ends. Now, I shared this article on True Social and Telegram, and you know what people did? They reacted instead of understanding. Can you believe it? They reacted to this article with angry faces and downvotes and upset comments. This is BS. This is crap. They're destroying our country. Blah, 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 blah. Instead of realizing that there's actually some good news in this article, and that's why I was sharing it. Because check this out. Top U.S. officials are considering drastic measures, including barring some asylum seekers and surging prosecutions of illegal border crossings. Okay, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Barring asylum seekers... And surging prosecutions of illegal border crossings. That's good. Next. In preparation for an intent for the end of the pandemic era Title 42 policy. Okay, so the Title 42 is coming to an end. And now they're having to make new policy. Why it matters. Some of the ideas under consideration echo controversial immigration policies from the Trump administration. Boom. They're considering using Trump-era policies for the border. That's also a good thing. Others could expand legal avenues for migrants and asylum seekers in the region to enter the U.S. That's also a good thing. We should expand legal immigration avenues. We should make it easier for good people who want to legally immigrate here to legally immigrate. That's, these are both really good things. Bullet point that some of these approaches are being considered at the highest level of government reflects the Biden administration's desperation to get a handle on unprecedented efforts to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Top officials from the White House National Security Council, Department of Homeland Security, State Department and Justice have been involved in the discussions. Some of the potential actions would require cooperation from multiple agencies, according to two U.S. sources familiar with the internal discussions. What's driving the news is a federal judge is forcing border officials to stop using Title 42 beginning on December 21st. The Trump-era policy, continued under the Biden administration, cites public health concerns to allow Border Patrol to immediately expel migrants at the border without the chance for asylum. 
U.S. officials anticipate the loss of the tool and the narrative that there are open borders will lead to a jump in the already high number of border crossings. Preparations for this scenario have been underway. Actions to expand legal pathways for migrants and asylum seekers and crack down on people who do not enter the U.S. at legal entry points were discussed in detail as recently as a cabinet head level meeting on Monday, according to two sources familiar. Final plans are still in flux, but the planning comes as House Republicans gear up for investigations into the administration's handling of the border and potential impeachment inquiry into DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. But they're saying, as we quote, as we prepare to transition to the next phase of our work to manage the border in a safe, orderly, and humane way, the Department of Homeland Security will continue to double down on these proven strategies, a Biden official told Axios, listing various efforts by the administration to tackle irregular migration. Isn't that a term? Irregular migration. At the same time, we're eyes wide open to the reality that despite all the progress we've made, we're continuing to work within the constraints of a decades-old broken immigration system that Republican officials refuse to allow us to fix. Yeah, we know what they mean by fix. Details. Officials are moving toward a multi-pronged approach involving both carrot-and-stick domestic measures and continued diplomatic requests for countries to do more on asylum and border controls. Two measures being considered appear similar to controversial Trump policies. Now, you know if Axios is calling this controversial Trump policies, they're the good ones. They're the good ones. This is what we want. One proposal would bar from asylum single adults who illegally cross the border and have not first applied for legal pathways offered by the U.S. or protection in other countries they traveled through. They would be placed on the expedited removal process. Yes. Good. There would be exceptions for extreme cases, although the specifics of those exceptions are unclear. Another proposal calls for a surge in criminal prosecutions. For, similar, for single adults who have done nothing other than illegally across the border, with a focus on those who evade border patrol. One source, however, said this would be a tough sell for the Justice Department. Well, I don't care if it's a tough sell. Make it happen. This is a good thing. A very good thing. To incentivize people to apply and enter the U.S. legally... Officials are looking at raising the 24,000 person cap on the number of Venezuelans who can be paroled via a new process started last month. The process forces back to Mexico those who instead attempt to cross the border illegally. Good. The The perceived success of this program has inspired much of the administration's planning for post Title 42 indicating the program is set to continue even without Title 42 as the mechanism for returning people to Mexico. The number of Venezuelans attempting to cross the border has dropped significantly since its implementation. Officials are looking to expand the program to Nicaraguans who, like Venezuelans, are often difficult to return to their home country due to frosty government relations. Any expansion would greatly depend on cooperation with Mexico or other countries to host the people the U.S. kicks back. Officials are also eyeing an increase of refugee resettlements from the Western Hemisphere as another legal pathway 
for migrants to pursue before they can access the asylum process at the border. Little, little, uh, little concerned about that. Lastly, the administration wants to use an app owned and managed by Customs and Border Patrol to allow migrants to schedule a meeting at a legal entry point ahead of time, according to one source with direct knowledge of the idea. Mm. Reality check. We'll see if Axos is actually in the in reality. The volume of people already attempting to enter the U.S. at the southern border will complicate any efforts to overhaul policy. That's true. Limited space and resources at Border Patrol stations, detention spaces detention spaces or Mexican shelters could still prompt officials to release people into the U S while they await lengthy immigration proceedings. Some of the proposals eyed by the administration would require significant resources and coordination with foreign governments to get off the ground. The bottom line is stretched thin U S agencies find themselves preparing for another potential surge of migrants and asylum seekers at the border. Meanwhile, Policymakers are yet again trying to thread the needle enforcing order and immigration laws, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Biden administration has been told by a federal judge, Title 42 ends December 20-something. Was it December 21st? December 21st. And what does the Biden administration do? Are they saying, okay, good, we'll just have a, a more open border? No. They're saying we're going to go back to Trump era policies and we're going to increase the number of people who can come in legally and we're going to ask the Justice Department and DHS to surge their prosecutions of people who cross illegally. This is good stuff. And it's a contradiction. And you know, it's a contradiction from what you would expect from the Biden administration. Now, it could be easily explained, or maybe not easily, but it could be explained as, hey, they're feeling the heat. They're feeling the heat because of how it's gone these past two years and um, what's been going on at the border, which is a crisis they created uh, by inviting people to come here illegally and through their... There are various organizations who make this possible, who pay for and encourage and organize these mass groups of people to immigrate here. Um, There's been a crisis at the border of the Biden administration's own making and of the making of people who are aligned with the Biden administration and the Uniparty. It's a it's a crisis of the of the Uniparty's making. But them going back to Trump administration policies is what we want. And part of that's probably because they're feeling the heat from voters who are upset by this. Also because House Republicans, who are going to have the House starting in January, have control of it, are planning on running these committees, which are going to explore which are going to have hearings on this and the talk of impeaching Mayorkas is a threat to this administration. So they're trying to get out ahead of that so they can say, look, we, uh, we started doing these things and it's better now. Um, maybe they're gearing up to fix this ahead of 2024. You know, they want to have the border locked down and have a better situation there locked down, so to speak. Uh, they want to have a better situation on the border so that they can more effectively campaign and say they solve the border crisis in 2024. 
whatever the reason is, it's a very good thing. And I don't know that it's Devolution HQ Lion. Um, yeah, I don't know that it's that. Yeah, not sure. Not sure. I can't I can't directly tie it to that. But I do think it's good news. And this is a great example of why understanding is greater than reacting. So many people saw this and immediately jumped to it being a negative story when in fact it's a really good one. Okay. Next thing, Trump v. United States. So you guys actually let me open up. I'll open up the the docket and look at this case first. Let me let me grab Let's back up a bit. If you've been watching the show for a while, then um, you may remember I covered a document that was called the like global issues. Um, let's see, that's for the unseal. I don't remember which I'm trying to remember which one of these has which. Okay, there's this one. And here we go. This was sealed. Now it's been unsealed. There we go. Okay. So you may remember that I covered this global issues filing that was made in the Trump v. United States case, which is the Mar-a-Lago raid case and the special master case. And all these documents are with the special master now. And he's been going over these documents that were taken in the Mar-a-Lago raid and parsing them out for what is attorney-client privileged and all that kind of stuff, right? The filter team did their thing. Now the special master's doing his thing. He's due to be finished by December 16th. That's when he's supposed to be done. He could be done before then, but September or December 16th is the day, the deadline that's agreed on. Well, he asked them to give him a... Uh, he, he asked both parties, DOJ and Trump, to identify which um, which like big these big chunks or big stacks of documents do they agree on and which ones do they disagree on. And just to help him try and parse through these documents and get a whole bunch of them settled so he could focus on the the ones that they were there was actually contention over and so they filed these that's why it's called global issues it's where both parties have um an issue with the documents and they can agree on something so both parties did that and then they immediately filed to have them unsealed and i'm trying to remember which date that was i don't remember exactly but anyway they had them on. This is one of the uh, filings that got unsealed. Um, this was filed on November 8th on election day. I remember. Oh yeah. I remember this from election day. Yeah. I, I remember sharing this while I was on the road after I voted. Um, 
so they're they're taking these documents and they're like saying, okay, this one we categorize as executive privilege. This group over here we categorize as presidential record or personal record. And this group is attorney-client privilege or whatever. This group is marked classified. They unsealed this and then they had this agreement that they were going to have an in-person meeting on December 1st. Well, the curious thing is that yesterday, Judge Deary canceled it. The special master canceled this meeting. And it was supposed to be an in-person meeting with DOJ's lawyers and Trump's lawyers, and they were going to inform the special master on all of these documents right here. They're identified by Bates numbers. And instead, he canceled the meeting and said it's not necessary. And it I don't know what to make of it exactly. Anyway, let me read this to you. Upon further review of the record, the special master has determined that there are no matters requiring counsel to travel to Brooklyn for an in-person conference. The conference previously scheduled for December 1st, 2022, is therefore canceled. Instead, the special master directs the parties to respond jointly to the following questions by 5 p.m. on December 1st. Do the parties dispute the categorization of the following records under the Presidential Records Act? In each case, the party spreadsheet summarizing their respective categorizations and disputes reflects that the parties have a PRA dispute, despite both sides categorizing the document as a personal record. Do the parties dispute the, the PRA categorization of Bates number 701? The party spreadsheets reflect different categorizations, but also list a document as not being in dispute. So see, both parties gave the judge a spreadsheet saying this is how we categorize each of these documents. And there was agreement, global agreement between the two, that these are all PRA, these are all executive privilege, these are all whatever. But there's some that they disagree on, and that's what he wants them to clarify. Does plaintiff assert executive privilege with respect to Bates numbers 054 and 055, documents 15 and 16 of the filter materials? Compare ECF 161 and 2. Letter from plaintiff's counsel noting the letter is no further matter to resolve as to each with ECF 161. These are each filings. ECFs are electronic filings. And he wants them to clarify the discrepancies between the two via filings. Signed by Special Master Raymond J. Deary on 1128. I just find it interesting that he he canceled this meeting for them to argue in person. And maybe there's not much to read in it, but... I feel like he's going to finish early. Like he's just about done and he only has these questions so he doesn't even need the conference. And the special master might wrap up before December 16th. The other thing that's been happening in this case that's really interesting is that now there's a special counsel that's appointed. So the special counsel is going to be taking over this investigation that the Mar-a-Lago raid raid, quote unquote, uh, 
uh, is part of. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the special master has to say, because instead of it going back to Judge Cannon, it's going to be, well, you'll go to Judge Cannon, but the special master is going to be the guy who is taking over this case and is going to be making the filings. Um, there was something really interesting I wanted to point out in one of these filings. It's, uh, it's not this one. It is this one. Okay. Now this is backing up a bit. Um, this is on the same day as the global issues filing was made. Uh, this one right here, but there's some stuff that's redacted. And that's what's interesting to me. This is DOJ, and they're saying plaintiff cannot deem presidential records to be personal records. And he says, it, they write, in several hundred instances, plaintiff has asserted that records are personal with the following explanation. Basis, covers, folders, envelopes, personal messages, miscellaneous personal Consistent with the PRA and Judicial Watch versus NARA, these are items generated during the presidency that can be possessed post-presidency and effectively deemed personal. That assertion makes no sense, and the special master should reject it. On the above basis, taking as a sample just the first hundred pages of documents, plaintiff has designated as personal records and items such as and then it's all redacted. Those items plainly constitute presidential records under the PRA. That is, they are materials created or received by the president, the president's immediate staff, or a unit or individual of the executive office of the president whose function is to advise or assist the president in the course of conducting activities which relate to or have an effect upon the carrying out of the constitutional statutory or other official or ceremonies, ceremonial duties of the president. Just as plainly, they are not personal records, which the PRA defines as essentially the opposite. So, what DOJ is saying here is these items that are redacted are essential pieces of records that have to do with the president carrying out his duties as president or members of his executive office carrying out their duties as president. And I think this is some juicy, juicy stuff. Like, what if this has to do with uh, DNI Ratcliffe? What if this has to do with Ukraine or the Hillary Clinton email server or any other spygate? I think, I think this is... This is really what this is all about. And I think Trump is doing um, a very classic Trump move here. Where he is holding an item or he's holding something back and saying, no, you can't have it. You can't have it. You can't have it. And everybody's attention is getting on it and it's causing a Streisand effect. And then once you get it, it's like, oh, Kind of like the Ukraine phone call, uh, kind of like some several other things with Trump, like his tax records and other things like that, where it's like the media gets focused on it because they think 
he's hiding something nefarious. They think he's hiding something that is going because he's embarrassed about it or concerned. He's hiding it because he's afraid he's going to get caught. There's something bad or scandalous going on. When really, it's something that exonerates him and condemns his enemies. Now, I've I've thought this entire time that that is what is going on here. He's holding this stuff back, drawing their attention to it, causing them to report on it, causing them to make mistakes because they're emotionally invested in getting Trump. And then when it finally gets revealed what it is, they're like, oh, crap. It's not at all what they wanted. That's what's behind these blocks. I'm convinced that that is what is behind these blocks. And there's more. Check out the rest of this filing. Okay. There's the argument over what is personal and what is a president record plan does not appear to pretend otherwise. Indeed, where a plausible argument can be made that a record is actually a personal record under the PRA plaintiff has indicated as much by providing a different basis in the privilege log. Typically basis newspapers, media summaries, gifts, clothing, inherently personal items, not related to presidential duties. Those are personal records. And I'm telling you guys, Trump is purposefully claiming that his presidential records are personal. And DOJ is pointing out right here the contradiction in this and saying, nah, look, he, this doesn't make any sense. This, this stuff is not a personal record. This isn't gifts or clothing or media stories or handwritten notes. This stuff has to do with the execution of his office, of the executive branch. Judicial Watch held no such thing. In that case, the district... Okay, well, I can skip that. Okay, well, I won't skip it because it's got something juicy here. Okay. Presidential records to be personal records by fiat uh, for assertion, blah, blah, blah. Judicial Watch held no such thing. In the Judicial Watch case against the National Records Administration, NARA, they brought a claim to compel NARA to revisit or overrule a categorization of records that the president made during his term in office. Specifically, Judicial Watch sought audio tapes created by former President Clinton with his biographer during his administration, which he had treated as personal rather than presidential records and thus had not provided to NARA. NARA concurred in the designation of the tapes as personal records based on the nature of the audio tapes, if they were created with the intent of their use as government materials, or in whether or not they were circulated within the administration or relied on as policy documents. The Sox case, which Trump has pointed to in several truths, right? Dude, I just had a thought. What if Trump made tapes of him talking about the Clinton email server or the Ukraine scandal or Spygate or whatever, and he's deep in like, he's saying their personal records and to cause this argument, to cause us to cause them to get to, uh, to go after them so that it'll, it'll, it'll enter the public domain 
that he has all these staped recordings of them talking about the crimes of the Clintons and Spygate crimes and Ukraine corruption. Just a thought, just a thought. What if instead of making tapes for um, a biographer, Trump made tapes that he knew they would come after him for, and he intentionally kept them from NARA so that they would come after that NARA would come after them to get them. And then what happens? Audio recordings of the details of these scandals, which are a threat to our nation end up going into the national archives. Just, just a thought, just a thought. Because remember, because remember what Cash Patel said these records are. Cash Patel is Trump's guy who was appointed over his records at Mar-a-Lago, and Cash Patel said these are these records have to do with the crimes of the Clintons, the Ukraine scandal, Spygate. I can't, I think he mentioned Uranium One, but I'm not positive. Um, and I feel like there's one other he mentioned. I mean, he, Cash Patel told us what the content was. Anyway. All right, back to this. Additionally, although the court opined that the responsibility to classify records as personal or presidential is solely to the president during his term in office, the court nowhere suggested that it would be lawful for a president to flatly defy the PRA by designating what are obviously government records as his personal records. Such a reading of the PRA would nullify the statute's entire purpose by allowing a president to designate all of his official records as personal records and then to remove them upon departure from the White House. And it would reduce the PRA's detailed definitions of a presidential record and personal record. Additionally, even if plaintiff reading of the PRA were correct, the relevant time for him to have designated records as personal or presidential was during his term in office. As Judicial Watch itself explained, which speaks to the duties of the president and his staff to categorize and file records as personal or presidential, calls for decisions as to the proper categorization of records, quote, to be made during and not after the presidency. The categorization of records during the presidency controls what happens next. At the conclusion of the president's term, the archivist is directed to assume responsibility for the custody, control, and preservation of and access to the presidential records of that president. Therefore, even under plaintiff's incorrect reading of the PRA and judicial watch, plaintiff would need to supply specific evidence that he categorized the records in question as his personal records while he was president. And see, this is, a, this is one of the things you know about this that makes it a fake fight. Um. Well, there's many things that indicate that this is a fake fight between Trump and DOJ. Uh, but one of the things is that they've done a perfectly fine job categorizing certain things as personal and other things as presidential records. But then there's this set of things that DOJ is after that Trump has miscategorized and is making them chase. He's, he's, he's making them chase these records and he's doing it on purpose. And you can know that because he clearly and his lawyers clearly understand the difference between a personal and a presidential record because they've correctly categorized a whole bunch of it as one or the other. But it's on this other set, and D that's what this filing is about, is DOJ's like, this is obviously not a personal record. 
Next part. Plaintiff designation of certain categories of records as personal records is overbroad. For several categories of records, president has applied or plaintiff has applied, same thing, overbroad criteria in asserting that records are personal. The government describes those categories below, followed by a description of the government's more tailored criteria that more closely track with the PRA's terms. Additionally, to the extent the special master would benefit from further guidance or expertise as to the proper categorization of a particular document or record, the government encourages the special master to consult with NARA. And then we get all of this. Man, I want to know. Man, I want to know what's in this. You know it's juicy. I mean, this list right here, this 10, right? You got one sentence here. The government's categorizations. The government sets forth below the categories and standards it applied for certain records that could be personal or presidential, depending on further details. And then it's 10 criterias that are completely redacted. Next section, plaintiff's designation of a document as a personal record precludes the assertion of executive privilege to that document. Plaintiff cannot claim that a document is both his personal record and is also subject to executive privilege. The PRA defines personal records to be used of purely private or non-public character, which do not relate or have an effect upon the carrying out of the constitutional, statutory, or other official or ceremonial duties of the president. This is another area where Trump is obviously playing a game. They know the difference between executive privilege items and personal records and presidential, but they're still misclassifying things on purpose. And (laughs) here you go. This is another way you know that this is a fake Fight. The distinction between personal records and those subject to executive privilege was illustrated recently in Trump versus Mazars. In that case, several congressional committees issued subpoenas seeking information about the finances of then President Trump, his children, and affiliated businesses. Plaintiff did not claim executive privilege as to those personal records, presumably because he could not. And the court rejected his argument that the standard articulated in United States versus Nixon which shields presidential communications from disclosure unless there is a demonstrated specific need for them, should shield his personal records. Seeming to recognize that a document cannot be both a personal record and be shielded by executive privilege, plaintiff has indicated that he asserts executive privilege only if the special master rejects his assertion that a document is a personal record and determines that it is a presidential one. That is a shell game. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And the special master should not indulge in it. An assertion of executive privilege should be based on considered judgment about the present and future needs of the executive branch. Yes. Just like so many things Trump does and that it's a game. It's a purposeful shell game to get to get them to chase him. And uh, it's beautiful. And that Trump tax case was beautiful. And I don't think I covered it on my show because I think I was out of town when that dropped. I'm, they, things are kind of blurring together for me. Uh, 
but the Trump tax case set a precedent. It set a precedent because Trump forced SCOTUS to rule that this congressional committee could get access to his taxes. He he made them chase that down specifically so he would lose at the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would make the would set the precedent that a congressional committee could get access to a president's uh, financial records. And I saw some people saying, no, that's not precedent setting because all these other presidents, they've they've shown their taxes. Trump's the only one who wouldn't show them. Right. They showed one or two years or so of their taxes voluntarily when they were running for office. Right. They showed like Biden showed his taxes for a couple years or something. He didn't show you everything. He didn't show you the past 10, 20 years of his taxes. He just showed you the last year or two. Trump, by Trump taking that case all the way to SCOTUS and making SCOTUS rule on it, it's now set the precedent that committees can subpoena the tax records of all the, the of future presidents so that future presidents will have to show all of it, not just the past year or two as they were preparing to run for office so they stopped doing shady stuff in their taxes or they started doing things in their taxes that made them look honest. No, they're going to have to show a lot more than that. And now there's a, a, a precedent that has been set that they can legally do that. Think about how much fun it's going to be for a, a, a MAGA run committee to subpoena the tax records of the Bidens for the past 10 years. And they, and they're making Trump show business stuff and his other things, like not just his personal taxes for the past year. It's, it's awesome, and it's a, it's a great example of what Trump does and how he he makes them chase him. They're thinking they're going to get him, and what he does is he establishes a precedent or he tricks them into talking about what he wants them to talk about. And every time, every time, he is exonerated and his enemies are worse off. Okay. This section is about how the plaintiff can't withhold seized materials from the government based on executive privilege. And yeah, that's good. For the foregoing, <clears throat> excuse me, the conclusion of this is, wait, how many documents does that say? Absent any specific justification from plaintiff for continuing to restrict the government's review and the use of 2,794 records for which plaintiff has not asserted any privilege, there is no reason to maintain the court's injunction on those records. What are those? Plaintiff purported intent to pursue a motion for return of property has also no bearing. Courts consistently hold that when the government provides or offers to provide copies of seized records to the plaintiff, it does not require the return of original documents. Okay. 
Okay. So the conclusion here of this filing, which was made on the same day as the global issues filing and all that, this is back on voting day, November, uh, or actually November 9th is the day it got the, the date stamped on it. For the foregoing reasons, plaintiffs should not be permitted to deem records that are on their face presidential as personal. The special master should not or should adopt the government's position. Plaintiff's assertion of executive privilege fail. They actually do fail. They do. Plaintiff should be required to provide a declaration regarding the inventory of seized materials in a lawsuit of his own making in which he bears the burden of proof. And special master should recommend that the court lift its injunction. Okay. Let's check on something real quick. Since there has been a special or there has been a special counsel appointed, every day I've been going and checking to see if he has filed in these other cases. Um, so you guys probably remember that this case, this is the original Mar-a-Lago search warrant case. If you sort this back to the first day, you will see that the search warrant was signed on August 5th by Bruce Re Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, right? So it's signed on August 5th, and then the raid happens on August 8th, okay? And if you've read my article, then you know uh, that Trump and, Trump and his team knew the raid was coming. This has all been coordinated. They're not after Trump. It's... It's they they were well aware of this. The deep state is who wasn't aware. The media is who wasn't aware of this raid, even though there was the warrant was signed three days before the raid happened. There were no leaks of the raid. Um, DOJ is not after Trump. And. August 5th is the date this was signed. The same time that this was signed. It was pretty sure if I remember right, it was this search warrant that we're all familiar familiar with. And there's been so much fighting over. This was the first search warrant that was signed that morning. But then this one was signed right after. Actually, let me let me grab um hold on a second. Let me grab my substack because I have a screenshot of it there. And it'll be worth it to grab that. I have a screenshot of that morning and what order they were uh they were the search warrants were signed in. Here we go. So this one right here was signed first, um zero eight three three two. And that is this one, zero eight three three two. That's the big case where uh, there's been the filter team and then Trump sued and it went to the special master. That's the big one. But then a telephone record search warrant was signed same day. Which is this one. And this is all sealed. The attorney that's on it is sealed. And the two filings in it. Sealed, the search warrant itself is sealed, and nothing has happened here. And then you see the next thing signed was this sealed pen register, 
And the reason I have an arrow here is because I was like, is that misspelled? What is, I didn't realize, I thought sealed, and when I saw this, I thought sealed was like a company. Like sealed pen register was a company. So it was like United States versus this company. I didn't realize it was a misspelling. And it's still misspelled. And it's still sealed. Right there. It should be spelled with an E right there. Sealed. Pen register. A pen register, trap, and trace. The attorney who's on it is sealed. And then, so this is the first one. This is the Mar-a-Lago raid that we're familiar with that is unsealed. Then this telephone record search warrant was signed. Then a pen register trap and trace was signed. search warrant was signed. And then you have this other search warrant. This other search warrant ends in 08338. See right there, 08338. This case is also sealed, but a newspaper, the U.S. attorney is sealed right there, although it does give you Susan Osborne as the office to contact. We know from this case, though, that this is also a Mar-a-Lago raid. Because in the flurry of filings that happened in this one, at the very beginning where all these newspapers were filing to get access, motion to unseal, filing to intervene for the public's interest, and all of this stuff, one of the newspapers noticed, just like I noticed, that, hey, Judge Bruce Reinhardt signed all of these things on the same day. Are they related? Are they all related to Mar-a-Lago? This one's the Mar-a-Lago one we know is related. What about these other three that he, Bruce Reinhardt signed that same day? And who was it? It was one of the newspapers signed. I don't remember which one it was. But here, I will go and show you. Let me take, I got to log into Pacer real quick. And I will show you that this one is also Mar-a-Lago. Right here, response to motion to unseal the undersigned assistant attorney. That's why we have Susan Osborne as added to as a party on that um, is because they had to make this filing in response to the media trying to unseal this case. The undersigned assistant United States attorney hereby respectfully requests that this court deny the letter motion filed by the Times Union of Albany, New York. That's the newspaper who filed to unseal it. The letter motion seeks unsealing of records related to the search of the residence of former President Donald J. Trump in Palm Beach, Florida, and references two case numbers. The government has already moved to unseal materials related to the warrant involving the res- residence of former President Trump in that other case, the 8332 case we talked about. The above caption warrant c- case number 
8338 concerns an ongoing investigation that is completely unrelated to the subject matter of the other warrant and the letter motion to unseal. Accordingly, this warrant should remain sealed and the letter motion denied in this case. They're saying that those two aren't related, but this letter motion seeks the unsealing of records relating to the search of the residence of President Donald Trump and references two case numbers. I think they are related, but they're not the same case. They have two different case numbers, and they were all signed that same morning by Reinhardt. So I'm watching this. I've been checking these each morning to see if the special master files to be added to these cases. Because if he does, then that's confirmation they absolutely are related. I hope y'all are following what I'm getting at. Um, See, you can say the above caption warrant concerns an ongoing investigation that is completely unrelated to the subject matter of the other warrant and the letter to motion unsealed, but they're two different cases. So they're about two different things. So they can be said to be unrelated because there's two different cases here. That's why they have different case numbers. Anyway, I've been checking that every day to see if the new special counsel has been added to this. Okay. Next thing. Well, next we're going to talk about Oath Keepers, but let's take just a a couple minutes break real quick before we do. Um, Just a minute. There we go. Okay, yeah. I just want to uh, take just a couple minutes break, and I'll come back with a fresh cup of coffee, and we'll do this last segment on the Oath Keepers guilty verdict. Intermission.
Oh, well, I timed that well, didn't I? Just as the track ended. Welcome back, folks. <clears throat> Thank you for being here. Thank you to everybody who is watching over on Telegram, DLive, Rumble, and Foxhole. Appreciate you guys very much. Um, and I love doing this show, guys. I love doing these digs and uh, fleshing this stuff out, trying to figure stuff out. I'm just, I'm just human, and this information war, this 5GW that we're in, is overwhelming and intriguing, and um, I'm just doing my best to figure it out, what, whatever I can figure out. And I really appreciate that you guys give me your time and your attention and your support. Um, if you're over on rumble, hit that plus button that helps me out. And, uh, it helps me out in the rumble algorithm. I saw the other day I made like the number 10 spot on the rumble Battleboard thing they have, which is pretty cool. Um, I, I got to admit that was really cool. Um, I've never seen my show. I don't think I've ever seen my show make that battle board. Uh, but that's based on the rumbles that you give the show. So if you want to help me out, hit that uh, hit that plus button. If you're looking for other ways to help me out, um, besides things like that, besides sharing the show, which is a great thing to do and I appreciate it, is um, the, my links are down here in the description over on Rumble. Or if you're watching me somewhere else, just go to my link tree and you'll find them. You can find my Substack, my merch store. Um, I've also linked up with Benson Honey Farms, which is a Patriot small business that has honey products and I use their products. I love all their products and they offered me a rep code, which is just human use rep. If you want to get some honey, you want to get a gift package, some soap. I use their products every day. I have some of it right here. Um, if you're looking for a gift for somebody for Christmas, that is all natural, pure honey or soaps or whatever, bensonhoneyfarms.com rep code, just human. Um, appreciate you guys very much and all the support you give this show. Also, if you're interested in an audio in a podcast version of the show, I put that out through my Substack, justhuman.substack.com. Everything on there is free. All of my content's free. All of my articles, videos, podcasts, everything's free. Um, but if you're interested in a podcast version, you can get that through my Substack. And after the show's over, I will rip the audio from this and upload it there. I'm not sending it out as an email anymore because I I'm try I don't want to send people I don't I personally don't like getting a bunch of emails. So I'm just putting it on there. If you if you sign up for my Substack, you can go and you can access the podcast either through the Substack app or you can set it up to feel to a, feed to Apple Podcast or whatever podcast player you prefer. Okay. Next topic. Not sure if it'll be my last one. Um, it may be my last topic. We'll we'll see. I haven't got to the FTX thing though. Ah, okay. Let me do FTX first because I really want to do this specific article that this guy made. Okay, let me grab this and then I'll do Oath Keepers. So this Arturel over on Rumble, thank you very much for the rant. Much appreciated. Thank you for your support. Um, they say just because it's looking light today. Heck yeah. 
it's really rainy here. <laughs> it's not that light outside here, I don't think. But um, look at the wind out my window over here to see. It's still a bit overcast, I think, over here. But it is today is a good day. Um, yeah, uh, CPA Deb, FTX is the gift that keeps on giving. It's it's not nearly we're not nearly done unpacking this scandal. But here I'm going to unpack a piece of it here. Okay. Here is a list. This is from um, David A. Giglio, who ran for office, I think, in California, um, Republican. And he came up with a list of all the PACs and members of Congress that accepted money from FTX executives. Of course, he's calling it stolen money. I'm not sure if it's stolen is the right word. It might be the right word, though. Okay. He says, I have to admit, when I first made my Twitter post outing Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and other Republicans that accepted money from various FTX executives, I did not expect it to take off like it did. Almost immediately, the post went viral and and people began asking more questions than I had answers at the moment. Their intrigue inspired me to dig even further into the situation to see what more I could uncover and infer from the trail of money left behind. Below are the fruits of my labors, as well as my personal observations based on the data collected. The sortable spreadsheet attached at the bottom can be downloaded for free and provides names, dates, dollar amounts, and party ID of every member of Congress who accepted money from Team FTX. Key takeaways. FTX executives who made political donations were Tier 1 Big Money, Sam Bankman-Fried, Ryan David Salam, Salame, Nishad Singh. Tier 2, Clarissa Watanabe, Mark Wetgen. Tier 3, Ryan Miller, Ramnick Aurora, Zachary Dexter, Adam Kalinich, Brett Harrison, Danielle Barrett, and Gabriel Bankman-Fried. 99% of the money donated by FTX executives went to incumbents who were extremely likely, if not guaranteed, to win re-election. That's really interesting. 99% went to incumbents who are basically guaranteed to win. Of all the small amounts of money donated to challengers, funds were spent in open seat races. In a toss-up or nearly drawn competitive districts, money usually went to both sides or to the candidate of choice in the primaries. Think about that. They gave money, he was they were giving money to both sides in toss-up races. In races rated as likely are or likely D, the money went to the candidate from that party. On a few occasions, money was spent in these likely R or likely D races in the primary on preferred establishment candidates, or candidates who appeared likely had a strong chance of winning the primary. For example, Max Miller in Ohio, Michael Guest in Mississippi, Michelle Bond in New York, Carrick Flynn in Oregon, Francis Cannoli in New York. Donations were made strategically to members of Congress who sit on the most powerful committees. Only five members of Congress who took money from FTX executives voted against continuing aid to Ukraine. They are Filarakis of Florida, Duncan of South Carolina, Boozman of Arkansas, Kamak of Florida, and Jackson of Texas. Five congressmen who received money from FTS executives 
sent a letter to the Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, in March of 2022, seeking to stop the commission's investigation into FTX and Alameda Capital. Tom Emmer is one of them, Republican from Minnesota, Ted Budd of North Carolina, Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, Jake Ochenkloss of New Jersey, and Richie Torres of New York. So those people right there sent a letter to the FTC questioning them and trying to stop them from investigating FTX way back in March of this year. Samuel Bankman-Fried donated almost exclusively to Democrats. Now, that's him personally. He donated almost exclusively to Democrats. His donations to Republicans were made exclusively to Senate Republicans who voted to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment or who had publicly disavowed the 45th president. They include Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah, Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Susan Collins of Maine, John Thune of South Dakota, and John Boozman of Arkansas. His other major donations to Republicans went to the following, quote-unquote, conservative PACs. Heartland Resurgence PAC, $50,000, which spent money in the 2022 cycle protecting John Boozman and Ann Wagner. Results for North Carolina, Incorporated, got $700,000, which is Tom Tillis, super PAC that spent over a million to take out GOP rep Madison Cawthorn in the primary. Establishment Republican Chuck Edwards of North Carolina, who defeated Cawthorn, later received a tax a max campaign donation from Ryan David Salami in September 2022. America United PAC got $300,000, which is a PAC funded almost exclusively by the never-Trump Republican Ziff brothers, who were caught up in the Hillary Clinton-funded Trump-Russia hoax. Excuse me. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, House Majority PAC, received $6 million from Sam Bankman-Fried in March 2022. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's Senate Majority PAC received $2.5 million from Sam Bankman-Fried and Nishad Singh in May, June, and July 2022. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell PAC received $2.6 million from Ryan David Salame in August and October of 2022. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy's PAC received $2.1 million from Ryan David Salame in June and March of 2022. The vast majority of money donated to Republican candidates came from FTX executive Ryan David Salame. And guys, I'm just guessing his name is Salame Salame. Salami, Salame. I really don't give a F what his name, how it should be pronounced. Because <laughs> F this guy. <laughs> In fact, I might just decide to purposefully mispronounce it. Because screw him. We can't know for sure, but it would be fair to assume that these October donations were made to court favors with members of the party poised to take power in January 2023. Already subject of an SEC investigation, it was likely that FTX executives felt it was increasingly likely that Congress would open a simultaneously a simultaneous investigation into their criminal behavior. That is, of course, unless you buy them off, which is what he was trying to do. 
or they were trying to do. The most interesting donations Ryan made to Republicans went to Max Miller of Ohio, Kaylin Leavitt of New Hampshire, Ronnie Jackson of Texas, Steve Scalise of Louisiana, Elise Stefanik of New York, Tom Emmer of Minnesota, and Kat Kamak of Florida, who was a member of the House Freedom Caucus. <laughs> Rumble chat. Um, is it LKW Cross says I should pronounce it so lame. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it so lame. I like that. Okay. I hate reading that those names got money. I hate it. It appears likely that these donations were made in an effort to prevent a challenge to Kevin McCarthy as Speaker if the GOP were to win control of the House. Scalise and Stefanik, Trump loyalists, could have emerged as potential challengers to McCarthy, but both have publicly supported McCarthy. Despite being staunch supporters of President Trump and members of the House Freedom Caucus, Kat Kamak and Ronnie Jackson declined to support Andy Biggs as Speaker and instead publicly pledged to support McCarthy. Leave it lost in a general election. Congressman-elect Max Miller has yet to make a public declaration regarding whom he supports for Speaker. Donations made to Republican senatorial candidates. By the way, I just want to say um, Donald Trump supports Kevin McCarthy for Speaker as well. So I get the point he's making, but Trump also supports McCarthy. So I've already made the chestnut checker speech on a different show. I won't make it again now. Donations made to Republican senatorial candidates, J.D. Vance of Ohio, Blake Masters of Arizona, Adam Laxalt of Nevada, and Herschel Walker of Georgia were likely done simply because it appeared that each one had a significant chance to win their respective races. I think that's a really good point here. They were spreading money around to whoever they thought would win. It was all about buying influence. It didn't matter what your party was, although their personal preferences as individuals, they gave mostly to Democrats. They also gave to anybody they thought would win. That's why they put gave money to candidates who were a sure bet, who were establishment incumbents and were unchallenged. They went ahead and gave them money just so they could say they, you know, they're trying to buy influence. We have money here. We're willing to give you some. <clears throat> they spread it around everywhere. Here's the spreadsheet he has included, which is awesome. In total, they gave $41.5 million to Democrats and $21.9 to Republicans. And here's the sortable list, and I'm not sure... I can get this to, let me see if I can get this to the, no, it's going to want, let me see. Let me see if I can get it to display in Brave for you. Um, no, it's just going to want me to, here, hold up, hold up. Just a second. I gotta put, I gotta change which screen I'm using. What? Come on. There we go. 
There we go. Now you can, I just want to show real quick just how thorough this spreadsheet is because this guy did an amazing job. So it has, let me zoom out. So what he did on this spreadsheet is he has the amount, the status of whether or not they're an incumbent, the date, uh, of course, their party and what, what chamber they're in. But he also put their committee assignments, which was a really good thing to do. You can see which committee these individuals are on. You can see which executive gave to them. And then some of them have notes like, so this person lost or this person won. Um, other things like that. This person, um, is part of this PAC, etc. So big shout out to this guy in this article. I'm going to share this article on all of my socials and just watch for that. If you're interested in getting this, he has everybody look is all of these people, all these people that they gave money to. I mean, there's a lot, you're going to see people on here who we would be a fan of like Lee Zeldin. $5,800. Um, but keep in mind that what they were doing is spreading their money around with anybody who they thought would win so that they could have influence with them. And then they had their favorite swamp people and they gave them tons. Their favorite, their favorite swamp rats, they gave them the most money because they wanted to buy influence. Um, this FTX scandal is absolutely huge. Um, it's not it's not nearly done getting unpacked at all. So anyway, after the show, I'm going to share this article over on my socials if you're interested in looking through that spreadsheet or saving it. All right, now let me go back to this last topic, and I'm I'm going to have to rush through it a bit, but maybe that's a good thing because people are probably going to get upset about it. So um, I caught some flack yesterday for what I said. I also got some praise. I got some agreement, but a lot of people are not happy about this. Um, Oath Keepers. I told you, I told you guys back when Oath Keepers got indicted that this was not what the deep state wanted. The deep state um, would prefer that the Oath Keepers hadn't been indicted, I believe, because the Oath Keepers turned on Trump. This, the Oath Keepers case shows that there was no coordination between Trump and what happened on January 6th. The Oath Keepers case showed that the January 6th Capitol riot, the invasion of the Capitol and the interruption of the objections to the slates of electors, was conceived, the planning for it began just three days after, two or three days after the November election on November 3rd, 2020. It had nothing to do with Trump's speech. It had nothing to do with Trump's tweets. It had nothing to do with anything people around Trump were saying we should do. Oath Keepers and Proud Boys began planning for what they called a Lexington. They wanted violence. Oath Keepers and Proud Boys wanted 
January 6th. And their idea was that what they would do was they would get MAGA, they would trick, they would trick well-meaning MAGA people into going into federal buildings and they wanted at least 50 of them in in each building and they wanted to hold them hostage there. They wanted to hold the federal government hostage and they wanted to hold good MAGA people hostage. They wanted the military to be called in. They wanted there to be shooting. They wanted there to be violence because they wanted to spark a new revolution, a violent one. And that is what these court cases show, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys case, which hasn't gone to trial yet. I think the trial starts in December, so it's coming up. But the Oath Keepers case showed that they immediately threw Trump under the bus. Uh, Rhodes, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy, said that, I don't see Trump doing anything but complaining. Um, it shows this was all premeditated. They came up with this conspiracy, and they executed it. And because of what they did, a whole bunch of really good MAGA people ended up getting in trouble with the law. They ended up trespassing. They ended up with... Um, interrupting a federal proceeding, the January 6th count or the, the, the elect count of the electors. So all these people who were the J sixers who were upset with how they've been treated and were upset that they, that they've been charged with all this stuff. And so many of whom have had their life ruined, who have uh, lost their jobs, who have gone through a whole bunch of financial hardship um, <clears throat> because of simply walking into the Capitol building and then walking back out. That happened because of these people. That happened because of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and others. They're to blame for that. And so I am very, very happy that the leader of the Oath Keepers and other members were convicted this week of seditious conspiracy and other charges. They deserve it. And I want nothing to anybody who supports Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and what they did on January 6th. I'm not saying supports the over the organization as a whole. I'm not sure about the organization as a whole or in general. I'm talking about what these groups did on January 6th, 2021. I do not support this. I don't want anything to do with anybody who, who advocates violence and advocates taking MAGA hostages inside federal buildings. Now, the, I'll just jump to the chase on this instead of reading this whole indictment. I'll share or this press release. Um, I'll address the controversy of it right now. The controversy and the pushback I get from people is that I'm wrong about being glad about this because there were FBI informants within Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. So therefore, it's the FBI who did this, not Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. That is incorrect. That is illogical. There were at least eight informants embedded in Oath Keepers and Proud Boys groups. And to that, I say good. Because they gathered evidence on them. At least one of those informants was convicted along with Rhodes. And to that, I say good. That informant probably violated his agreement with the FBI to inform 
on these groups. And see, people are making this connection where they're saying because there were informants in the groups, that means the FBI was in on it. And that is not what it means. It means the FBI was investigating and had informants in these groups. It does not mean the informants were telling the FBI everything they needed to know. Just like Danchenko was an FBI informant, but he didn't tell the FBI everything they needed to know about Chuck Dolan or Christopher Steele or Olga Galkina, did he? He kept those things from the FBI for months and months and months and lied about his meetings with Dolan and lied about his meetings with um, Sergey Milion. It can be the same thing here. I think people are making, they're making this jump that because there are informants within the groups, that means the FBI is fully aware of everything the groups are doing. It does not mean that. It means that the FBI has informants within the group. How credible those informants are and how good of a job they are doing at being an informant and what information they are actually giving the FBI is a different matter. It's an important matter, but it's something we would need to know and understand in order to shift blame or include the FBI in the blame for what happened on January 6th. Now, I don't think the FBI is blameless for January 6th. I don't think they're blameless. But I also don't think the Oath Keepers were set up and the Proud Boys were set up by the FBI just because there were informants. I've noticed that a lot of people think that informant means they seem to be equating informant informant with agent and they're not the same thing. An informant is just a person who is being paid and is under an agreement with the FBI that they're going to provide information to the FBI. That's all they are. And obviously the informant who was really high up in the, um, I think it's Caldwell was the guy. I think it was Thomas Caldwell was the informant that was really high up. He got convicted and, and no, it's Greg McWhorter. The informant Greg McWhorter served as the Oath Keeper's vice president, but was secretly reporting to the FBI about the group's activities in the weeks and months leading up to the Capitol attack, according to two people familiar. Well, he obviously did not inform them enough for them to stop the attack, but I'm not even that bothered about, about that because if you remember, as I've gone over before, the FBI had enough information from their informants to do this, to arrange for a quick reaction force to be staged at Quantico because they believed there was a threat to the Capitol on that day. So the FBI did the right thing as far as being ready for what this group could do. They were monitoring the whole situation. They were monitoring the situation, but whether the FBI should have stepped in and stopped these groups from ever being at the Capitol on January 6th, right? Like whether the FBI should have been more proactive and done more to stop Oath Keepers and Proud Boys from carrying out their plans. I think that's a good question that deserves committee, congressional committees and deserves the IG. 
the IG's attention. So I think we don't, I don't think we have the answer to whether or not the FBI had enough information to jump in and stop this from happening. <clears throat> we haven't gotten to the bottom of J6 yet. Uh, I think we all know that. We don't know all the pieces that went into J6th. And <clears throat> I'm hopeful that a MAGA Congress will form a committee to investigate J6th. And one of the things they will get to the bottom of is how much did the FBI know leading up to January 6th and what discussions were had about steps they could take to prevent what happened and why they didn't take those steps. Those are the those are the answers we need. We need to know how much information the informants had actually given the FBI. Um yeah. Now so I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad about this. Now the media is going to rep- the thing you got to be aware of is the media is going to report this as something different. The mainstream media is going to report that the oath keepers are guilty of sedition and um they were working with Trump and they were inspired by Trump's calls for the election being rigged. They're going to totally blame Trump for this. Of course, that's the programming. That's the programming coming from the mainstream media. Don't listen to it. When you get into the actual details of this case, you learn that these people were against Trump. Trump didn't want this. Is anybody going to argue that Trump wanted this to happen? You guys know that Trump didn't want this. Trump didn't want anybody to go into the Capitol and interrupt the objections to the slates of electors. Trump didn't want people being held hostage. Trump didn't want violence. These people absolutely went directly against what Trump wanted. And they did massive damage to MAGA and to Trump, to our country and to real people who are paying legal consequences for simply walking into the Capitol, taking a selfie, and walking back out. I, I, have, I, have, I want nothing to do with these people. They're horrible, and I'm glad they got convicted. <clears throat> now, there are other pieces of J6 that need to be investigated, such as why was there not more police? Why were there not more? Um, why was it easy in some areas of the Capitol for people to get in? Who unlocked the magnetic doors? Um, there's more There's more nefarious and dastardly pieces of J6 that we don't have all the information on. Um, and we need all those pieces. But this piece right here is a key, it was a key cog in that day. And this trial has, has shown that Trump was not responsible for what happened on J six. So, and if, you know, if the FBI got the, got information that they set on or hid or chose not to act on, they need to be held responsible for that, obviously. And that's going to take, that's going to take referrals to IG. That's going to take, um, congressional hearings. 
that's all part of cleaning up the FBI, which we know has to be done. We know that there are problems within the FBI. We've learned a bunch of their names over the past, like, several months, right? Like Tebow and Auten and uh, someone else whose name is escaping my mind. We've learned about them, and they're under investigation by the IG, and some of them have been recommended for suspension. Some of them have resigned. That all needs to continue. So... Thanks for the, I saw a rumble rant. JC Bird, good morning, sir. Thank you for the rumble rant. I really don't think, um, I really don't think the J6 thing is going the way that the deep state and the swamp wants it to go. And that's why the media pushes so hard to intentionally misrepresent what happened in this trial. Um, and I'm also, you know, everybody points at Ray Epps and they're like, where's Ray Epps? Because we don't know where Ray Epps is. That means that the FBI is protecting him. But I don't think that's the case. I think that Ray Epps is in a lot of trouble. And I think that he got busted for what he did on that day. And he's, I think he's the subject of something. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ray Epps is singing about everything. Um, I'm also still of the opinion that Ray Epps is some sort of intelligence. I think, I don't, I don't think FBI him being a CHS for FBI I don't think that's the only agency he's involved in. And I think that complicates things. Um, I don't, I don't think we've heard the last from Ray Epps, but before we hear more about him and from him, I think the, uh, I think DOJ is extracting a bunch of information from him. That's, that's just my speculation about it. Howard 76. I see you're asking for a Durham update. Well, there hasn't, um, I haven't seen anything with Durham, but I'm glad you uh, said that because there is a, um, a website now for the new special counsel. So see, here is Durham's uh, webpage at DOJ where it has his expenditures, his order that established him as special counsel, and then the two indictments that have come out of the special counsel. They've added one for Smith now. They did it yesterday, or it went live yesterday, and here's the one for Smith, and it has it's like the new website. Um, so I, I think that they're going to be changing justice.gov, which is a website I go to every day to check on what's been happening. But here is his appointment and here's his statement on his appointment. And then here's the order uh, appointing him and outlining his, his authorities. So this website is justice.gov slash SCO dash Smith. If you're interested in this special counsel, I suggest bookmarking this website. I shared it on my socials the other day. Um, so that's, He's got a website now, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out here. 
Durham hasn't hasn't released a new indictment. Obviously, we just got these two here. I do not believe that Durham is done, and I do not believe these are the last. We've seen the last of indictments from Durham. Um, I'm hope I'm hopeful that he will uh, drop an indictment before Christmas. Hopeful. I think that'd be great. I think that would make for a really good Christmas. But it may not be until next year. We'll see. We'll see. His that last grand jury he was running wrapped up in August, I think it was. I think it wrapped up in August. And so it's about it's about time. Come on, Durham. Come on, Durham. Drop drop a drop drop a new indictment for me to dig into. <laughs> so all right, guys, that's the show for today. I appreciate y'all very much. And um yeah, I hope y'all have a great day. Remember, um, we're not gonna win every battle, but we are gonna win this war. Stay positive, God bless you, and I will be live on Friday morning. We'll dig more into the FTX scandal and who knows whatever news happened has happened by then. Elon Musk is starting to let people back on Twitter. It's getting wild over there. You can follow me there. My links are on my link tree, or you can just search just human on Twitter. You'll find me, give me a follow and, uh, yeah. See you Friday.